I would just do a podcast as Werner Herzog. That's what mm. I would like uh, Really asking mm. kind of deadpan, serious yeah. questions. What would it be about? Everything, the universe, the whole thing, asking people... Can I call it Dear Werner? Yeah, to talk, <laughs> talk about, um, you know, things that really matter. Mm. Dear Werner. Werner is a... Yeah. As, yeah, agony. As an agony you now. It's be brilliant. Werner, what should we do about Brexit? What would you say? He'd say, I do not know what this Brexit is. <laughs> I like the things that he professes no knowledge of. That's one of my favourite things yeah. about Werner. <laughs> what was that thing about the house? <laughs> Execrably decorated house. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a serious bullet. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you open your log? Well, are we recording? Yeah. Oh. So I thought this year uh, we'd... Uh, we normally have Halloween snacks, don't we, in this episode? So I thought we'd have it instead. We do have a slight bonfire night theme. So we've got a bottle of Faustino Rioja... Uh, with the gentleman on it looks a bit like Guy Fawkes. Well, there isn't there is much Guy Fawkes themed wine. <laughs> and uh, we've also got some Cadbury mini bonfire logs. They're good, they're really nice. Well, they're nice. Are mm. they nice? Thank you. I'll just say craft beer can go fuck itself, it really can. We can yeah. say that. You've told the world. Yeah. I'm moving to the wine. I'm just mm. I'm afraid that, that craft The wine beer. is nice and wintry, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> these are like, what are these like? Bloody delicious. Mm. They're like orange mini rolls. Crunchy, there's a bit of crunchy oh, in there. Oh, there crunchy. is. Yeah, it's like it's a bit of a orange soft crunchy. crunchy. Soft yeah. orange crunchy. It's the perfect oh, marriage. Do you remember like them? A, a, a crunchy that's mated with a uh, Jaffa cake. Yeah. <laughs> what an unpleasant image, Joe. <laughs> the sort of transgressive image Daphne du Maurier. Yeah, exactly, yeah. would have very yeah. much appreciated, I think. No, we've it's, started early. Is there, is there a more batshit crazy author in the history of, of the world? <laughs> in a nutshell, you've flushed out the editorial theme of this episode. Yeah. We haven't even started yet. Can I just thank you for not mentioning the Book of Christ? All of you. Thank yeah. you. It's okay. Welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us celebrating Halloween, and frankly, we're all over the place. Entering a seedy flat in Chelsea, crossing the Grand Lagoon in Venice on a Vaporetto, basking in a lush Cornish garden during a heatwave, hiding in the cloakroom of an LA nightclub, driving through the snow on Exmoor, and scrambling over rocks in pursuit of chamois in northern Greece. But there's one thing in common. Wherever we find ourselves, we're feeling uneasy, haunted, Close to breaking point. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. It's Halloween, everyone! Well, it's nearly Halloween. Well, it might be Halloween when you're listening to it. Yeah. Joining us today is... Dr. Laura Varnum. Hello, Laura. Hello, thank you for having me. Laura is a lecturer in English literature at University College Oxford, and she is currently writing a book on... Daphne du Maurier. She regularly appears at the Foy Festival of Arts and Literature. The reason why I said Foy is because I've just listened to an audio book (laughs) in which the narrator refers to (laughs) Mandalay and Fowey. No! (laughs) I'm afraid so. It's Foy to rhyme with joy. Exactly, thank you. 
Uh, that's the sort of expertise we'll be turning to <laughs> for throughout. She regularly appears at the Foy Festival Arts and Literature in Cornwall and was one of the experts consulted on the documentary Daphne du Maurier in the footsteps of Rebecca. That's right. And when I asked you in the pub earlier what author you would choose if you weren't choosing Daphne du Maurier, what did you say? I said, could we do Angela du Maurier? <laughs> <laughs> So, so Laura is very wow. much the right person to be here at the table today. She is joined, as is traditional, for the darkest time of the year, the night when spirits walk. <laughs> Friendly, desiccated revenant. <laughs> by, by our favourite, Ambulant. Our jack-o'-lantern about town, Andrew, the spook male. <laughs> It's lovely to be back. <laughs> the more times you come on this show, the more so you have the piss taken out of you, I'm afraid. Andrew is the senior associate editor of Mojo magazine and writes about books, film, radio and TV for The Guardian, Sight and Sound and Sunday Times Culture. This is his fifth time on this podcast and his fourth at Halloween. Please, Andrew, list your previous episodes yeah. and for a bonus point, their episode numbers. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> The High Window by Raymond Chandler, which was episode number seven. Wow. Um, He's actually going to do this. A Cold Hand in Mine by Robert Aikman, which is episode number 22. And then we did Shirley Jackson, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which was episode 37. And then we did Ghosts by Edith Wharton, which was episode 51. I can honestly say that all those figures are completely incorrect. <laughs> Who won the derby in 1937? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great weight off my mind, sir. Thank you. Right. The book that uh, Laura and Andrew are joining us to discuss today is a collection of stories known as either The Breaking Point or The Blue Lenses by Daphne du Maurier, first published in 1959 by Victor Galantz, and first issued as a Virago modern classic in 2009. But before we plunge into the strangeness of the de Maurier universe, Andy, what's been on the Miller bedside table this week? <laughs> I saw that in the screen. The Miller bedside piles and piles of unread <laughs> books. So what I have here is a copy of the recently republished Osborne book, The World of the Unknown, All About Ghosts, first published in 1977, republished in a very backlisted, friendly manoeuvre by Osborne last week. We're recording this at the beginning of the October. And as I speak, this is in the top ten children's books. Wow. I had that book. I loved that book so much. So, so they brought this back from the dead. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, um, it's it become a bestseller. Once again. Now, I'm sure lots of people listening to this, certainly if they are of a certain age, will remember this book from childhood. It seems to have deeply affected and scarred <laughs> many of the people who either bought it when they were children or got it out from the library repeatedly, as I did. It's 30 pages, heavily illustrated, of an investigation into whether or not ghosts exist. What is a ghost, it says on page four. Ghosts are supposed to be the appearances of the spirits of the dead in a form visible to the living. And it's a brilliant mixture of the macabre and the reasonable. 
And that seems to have been the combination of the thing that seems to have sparked children's imaginations in the 70s. It has an introduction by Rhys Shearsmith of The League of Gentlemen and Inside Number 9. And he says, Morbid little tot that I was, my discovery of the Osborne World of the Unknown series in the school library came as such a blessing. Here was a whole series of books seemingly targeted specifically at me and dedicated to everything I was becoming fascinated by, a go-to resource on monsters, UFOs and, of course, ghosts. (laughs) And reading it again, I did read it from cover to cover this week. The thing that works about it more than anything else, apart from the spooky photographs and the illustrations, is the tone that it manages to treat the subject of the supernatural as though it were a science. <laughs> There's a long and glorious history of that. And, and it totally works for its presumed audience. That it isn't too scary, but it's the plausibility of it that makes it kind of horrible at points to read. It really reminded me of the television series The Mysterious World of Arthur C. Clarke, yeah. which presented itself, I don't know... Laura, you must surely be too young to remember that, but I, <laughs> yes, these I old, don't remember the other that. old buffers around the table will remember <laughs> yeah. it. It sort of presented the supernatural as deeply plausible until at the end of every episode, Arthur C. Clarke would say something like, well, UFOs, I don't believe in them, but you might. <laughs> How did Osborne, who are a famously solid, perhaps conservative publisher, come to do something as reckless as bringing back an old but they wouldn't do it unless they felt there was an audience. I don't know. It's a good, good question. What conversations do you think were had to get this at, off an editor's desk and out into the shops? The first time or now? Now. No, I, I mean, it must... It, that was, I, would, I had assumed that it was the kind of the pressure from the Shearsmith Gattis kind of uh, ghost brigade saying, you know, there's a whole... We were, and then that thing of discovering that all of us had this book. I mean, I... It, I 77, I was, I was in my teens, but I, I loved anything ghost-related. And as you say, it was a bit like a kind of proto-Dawling Kindersley yeah. kind of approach. So to... the book was written by a guy called Chris Maynard, who was the author of about 80 Osborne titles. Yeah, and Osborne tended to keep all their creative people in-house. So Peter Osborne would think of a subject, would come into the office, say, I think we should do ghosts. You two, go and write me a book about ghosts. And they retain all the rights, and they sell those rights all the way around the world. So, John, what happened is the, the reissue campaign back in, began in Finland, <laughs> where in the 70s, the Haunted Houses, Mysterious Powers and Vampires books had been licensed and collected under the title Nwaldoin Kasarikera. Sorry, Finnish people listening. It doesn't say anything <laughs> like that, does it? A Facebook group formed by Finnish fans gave almost 3,000 members and led to an August 2018 reprint that sold out within a week. Amazing with the country's latest sale figures now surpassing 18,000 copies. Which is big for Finland. Meanwhile, uh, the makers of a documentary, an animated feature on Borley Rectory, found themselves in touch with Osborne marketing director Anna Howarth, herself a fan of the book, who was inspired enough to set up an online petition hoping to convince the publishers that a UK reissue was a viable proposition brackets Andy ads, while also making good um, word-of-mouth publicity for the early republication of the book. I think the conversation that was had, in addition to all those things, were were the adult Ladybird books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the market has been proven 
yeah. for people wanting to revisit with a slight twist things that things they loved as a child. And this book and the success of this book and the others in the series will surely be back with us soon because of the success of this one. Yeah. So that is The World of the Unknown, all about ghosts, back in your bookshops now. I imagine this will go on to sell... I don't know. I think they could get up to six figures on this. We'll see. Christmas as well, isn't it? We've worked Absolutely Christmas. right. Anyway, John, what have you been reading this week? Well, it's not really a it's not really a ghostly book, but there is a um, um, it has a kind of it has a m- marvelous opening. It's a book called Copsford by Walter J. C. Murray, brought to us by the excellent little toller. As you know, I have to ration my little toller habit <laughs> out quite carefully. But this is it is such a simple and beautiful idea. Um, Young man working as a freelance journalist, had enough of living in London. He's clearly depressed and decides he needs to live in the country. It's a very old, basic urge. So he finds a properly dilapidated, absolutely dilapidated cottage. Uh, Ruth, uh, John's I'm waving, sure, I'm, I'm, waving the book at me, listeners, to prove uh, how most, dilapidated most, the cottage is. Most of the windows have gone. It's full of rats. It's completely uh, filthy. It's not been lived in for 20 years. And he goes and has a you know classic conversation with the farmer, persuades the farmer to rent it to him for a tiny amount of money, and he sweeps it out, gets himself a dog, uh, attacks the rats, manages to win the battle against the rats, and then spends a year gathering herbs and drying them in the cottage and selling. And he ends up putting them into sacks. Where there's a lot of there's a quite steep learning curve and learning how to do that, and then selling them. And he he survives one winter. I mean, I'm, don't mind about spoilers, but he decides the winter is so appalling, it's so cold, it's so wet that he can't live there anymore. And by this stage, he's all, already found the music mistress who he's been going on herb gathering things with, and, and then he leaves. So it's <laughs> it's but it's a book about spoilers. being solitary. It's a book yeah. about being being deeply kind of enmeshed. It is, to some extent, I think, a book about depression and as far as the nature cure idea of, you know, n- nature is quite his relationship with the house. As you, I'm going to read you a very short passage. It, it's quite a visceral, complicated relationship. I mean, the language can occasionally a bit, be a bit fruity. It was, I mean, it was written in the 40s. In fact, the story of it being written is really interesting because he, once he left Copsford, the house, he became a headmaster, and, and the, he, the book is written shortly after his 15-year-old son died. And one of the a beautiful introduction by Rainer Wynne, one of the, the, the things you feel is that he's almost trying to recreate this glorious kind of beautiful summer that his own son had. The thing that's most is, is most moving about it, apart from the fact that he writes, he does write brilliantly about really interesting things like scent and how scent works and how your senses become sharpened by living on your own and living in silence and living amongst nature is that the species, all the species of butterfly and flower, and you, it's a pre-lapsarian, pre-DDT, pre-climate change vision of the English countryside. I think it, would, it will chime with people who like their sort of uh, nature writing. With a, with a, with a, a, it's not just, you know, the, the Fotherington Thomas, hello trees, hello sky, although there is quite a bit of that in the book, to be fair. But it's better than that. It's, it's not, I don't think it's one of the undying masterpieces of English, of English prose, but he takes an idea and he delivers it beautifully. It's quite haunting. I'll just read you the spooky bit, I thought. I quite like this. When he first goes to the house, this is before, obviously, he's, um, he's triumphed in his war against the rats, but I'll just read you a little passage. I found myself in what had evidently been the living room, an old-fashioned kitchen range tottered half in and half out of the fireplace. There was no hearthstone. 
Instead, there was a great hole in the floor, choked with soot, crumbling mortar and broken bricks. There were two windows, the larger one I had seen from the outside beside the door. The other smaller one was on the right-hand side of the chimney and faced south. Both frames were loose at the sill, and the sash cords had long since rotted. The panes that were unbroken were so curtained with cobweb and grime that they let in little light in, and the room was darkened in consequence. The cracked ceiling was neither white nor black, and here and there the dirty, damp-stained walls boasted a few square feet of discoloured and peeling wallpaper. Between the skirting of the floor, I counted some half-dozen rat holes, and in addition, I noticed a big hole in the lower panel of the front door, evidently the rat's front entrance also. The floor was thick with their filth, and the whole atmosphere of the place reeked of these vermin. And then he can't really uh, deal with it. He says, I heard a movement overhead. I paused in the midst of my dust-raising investigations and listened. And then in the instant, the chill loneliness of the place swooped Mm. down upon me. The cold hand that had rested upon my shoulder now clutched me violently by the throat. And the appalling dreariness which so many years solitude had fashioned held me motionless. Those few seconds of my life are graven so deep in my memory that I think that nothing can ever efface them yet they are altogether indescribable. It was as though the place resented intrusion, as though human life had no further right there. It resisted passively while I moved and made a noise, but the moment I stood still it reasserted its own character with an intensity that was appalling. Its grip was icy. I was frozen motionless, numbed in heart and mind. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, that's good. So that's published by Little Toller. Little Toller. It's honestly, you know, it's such a, it's such an appealing idea. I think mm. we've all had it. I, you know what? I'm just going to go and look. There's a brilliant Tony Hancock <laughs> episode about the wild man in the woods, you know, going yeah. with it. But it is that thing. And it is, that sort of reminded me of that as well. I mean, it, 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 there is a comedy to it because it is obviously, and the farmer is particularly funny in it. Now, here are our sponsors telling you what to do. <laughs> In the privacy of her West Country home, we meet the famous author of Rebecca, Frenchman's Creek, The King's General, and other bestsellers, Miss Daphne du Maurier. Miss du Maurier is the wife of Major General Browning, leader of the Arborn Red Devils, and is mother of these charming children, Christian and Flavia. This is the sort of relaxation that Miss du Maurier enjoys. By the way, she's a keen archer and bird watcher. But her novels and film scripts leave her very little spare time. (laughs) When ideas come, they must be worked on and put on paper before they slip away again. It's in these grounds that Mr. Maurier has created many of those characters who have thrilled millions with their vitality and zest for adventure. Laura, what is the source of that whistle-stop tour of Miss Dumourier's achievements? Oh, it's just absolutely it's fabulous, isn't it? It just really it makes my heart lift to hear that music. <laughs> it's a Pathé yep. newsreel um, with uh, Daphne Dumourier striding the grounds of... Well, it wasn't her house, was it, Menabilly? No, she rented Menabilly. She, she rented it. Um, so the house that, that utterly possessed her for all of her life was a symbol of her her imagination. She she adored the house. We were one, the house and I, she used to say. The house would whisper its secrets and stories to her, um, but she could never own it and fully possess it. So there was always this extraordinary wow. fragility about her relationship with the house. And is the house the model for 
Manderley. It is. It is. I heard Manderley described as the most famous house in 20th century literature. And instantly, I think, is that right? But I, then I couldn't think of an, a better example. that is right. Thailand again to Manderley. We, <laughs> yes. we may hear it later. <laughs> the other one would be Hill House. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's true. You're right. I think it's Manderley. Top 10 countdown of <laughs> famous <laughs> houses in literature. Of course, sorry, Brideshead. Brideshead oh. also. But Rebecca was a massive best-selling yeah. book as well as Absolutely. one of the greatest films ever made. It is a... How many... Do we know approximately how many copies Rebecca sold? I mean, it is in the millions, isn't it? It was oh, a phenomenally... It's like Gone with the Wind or one and, of those. And I would imagine it yeah. probably still ticks over quite nicely uh, for, for Rebecca. Absolutely. It's never been out of print and was being printed in the tens of thousands within months of publication um, on August 5th, 1938. If you buy a vintage copy of Rebecca and you have a look at the, the list of, of when it was being published, it had been reprinted three times before it was even actually published. And then it's every couple of months in 1938, 1939. Amazing. It just keeps running. And According to the internet, it says between 1938 and 1965, it sold 2.8 million and it's never gone out of print. Wow. And Laura, what do you think it is about Rebecca? Let's ask this question immediately. What is it about Rebecca that spoke to people, women readers in particular, then and continues to do so now? I think it's partly Rebecca herself and it's the, the unnamed narrator um, and her fascination with this extraordinary figure of Rebecca um, that she's built up in her mind from our first moment of hearing about last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again and the association between Rebecca and the house. And then perhaps Rebecca turns out to be rather different uh, from what we might expect. Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. But as I advanced, I was aware that a change had come upon it. Nature had come into her own again, and little by little had encroached upon the drive with long, tenacious fingers. I wrote Rebecca when I was... I'd been married about uh, two or three years, and I was rather a shy, rather naive sort of person in those days. And I think this did come over quite a lot in the person of that young second Mrs. De Winter. Although, mark you, my husband had never been married before, but uh, I imagined what it would be like if he had and so on, and so it rather took shape as it did. Daphne du Maurier sort of splits her personality um, within this this novel, the, the the apparently shy, naive narrator, who in fact, of course, controls the entire narrative, and and then the extraordinary Rebecca, the wonderful woman that we all wish we could be, and it just has this incredible haunting quality that we constantly want to return to Mandalay, just as the narrator does um, in that in incredible opening, and it's a novel that certainly I first encountered in 
in my teens and constantly reread. But it, it reads very differently as you grow up and as you as you think more about um, the character of Rebecca and and Maxim mm-hmm. and rather like books like Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, Pride and Prejudice, we perhaps have a rather different view um, of the male characters when we're older. I've never read it. I, I don't know why. I was because I, I do love that film to, to bits. And, and it is one of the great moments in 20th century cinema when he, yeah. when he says, loved her, loved her. <gasps> and I hated her. <laughs> what? what, what? Yeah. Um, I mean, is it that good in the book? I mean, is it is it done with that kind of degree of shocking... Absolutely. Um, and I've never had any anything where the fall the the floor falls away mm, from John. From you. The, so I read the first Dumori I read was a couple of years ago. That was you'll never be. I'll, I'll never be young. I'll again. never be young again. I thought that was absolutely nuts. Right? <laughs> I could not believe. I think I talked about it on here. <laughs> then I read Rule Britannia. Brexit. Nuts, yeah. I thought that was absolutely nuts. And then I thought, okay, well, you've read an early one. You've read the last one. You ought to read Rebecca. And the thing about Rebecca, which really surprised me especially for such a best-selling, a famous book, is it's absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the recurring theme in Du Maurier's work. You, it, is, it took me aback that such a crazy book could be yeah. so popular and resonate with millions of people. The power of Du Maurier's imagination is just extraordinary. She hooks you in and then doesn't <laughs> let you go. I say this from, from personal experience, um, but also from, from talking to Du Maurier fans at the, at the Foy Festival every year. They come back yeah. year on year and year. Um, and if I said we would run a reading group on Rebecca every year, they would come because there's mm. always something to find. And, and Du Maurier fans, and I, I'm such a huge Du Maurier fan are just passionately obsessed with her with her books when did you uh let's return to your childhood <laughs> when, when, when did, did you first when did you first read Daphne du Maurier when I was 14 and I was given the book by my mum who had uh, taken this book out of the library she'd never read Daphne du Maurier before but she chose this book she thought it sounded good it wasn't Rebecca um, it was the house on the strand uh, which celebrates its 50th birthday this year and is in a, in a very strange way for my life um, uh, speaks to the my own sort of split personality um, the house on the strand is the medieval time travel novel of Daphne du Maurier <laughs> Um, <laughs> you weren't expecting that. I mean, that is the thing about, about Du Maurier. You never know what you're going to get next. And in my day job at University College Oxford, I teach medieval literature, but actually by by night, um, I work on Daphne <laughs> du Maurier. So, so my first Du Maurier had everything in it. It had the medieval wow. um, and, and it was Daphne. And that was it. I was hooked. So we're talking about this book, The Breaking Point, a.k.a. The Blue Lenses. Andrew, because you've read a lot of Du Maurier, I know you have, but when did you read this one? I discovered or started getting into the short stories only recently, only in like the last three years. And I think it was going back to what John was saying about Rebecca being a book that you feel that you you know but you never read. I think she's one of those authors who, partly because of how she's represented in popular culture, you feel that you you know her, you feel that she's a, a romantic author or, or, or you know oh, don't or, say that word uh, no, exactly exactly <laughs> but, but yes. there are there are certain preconceived notions that they're very easy to have and I started reading these collections of short stories and I just found her to be deeply strange and cryptic 
and haunting. And the other thing was that the next story was never the same as the previous one. She she would be trying out different <laughs> ideas. But there was also a kind of just something quite sinister and macabre running through a lot of her stories. These aren't kind of sweet tales of romance. There is, you know, there <laughs> is... Not. there's You know, there's a sadisticness running through them and there is a kind of... Uh, there's something brutal at their heart. And when she's on form, she pulls you in and you're taken along. And one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating is that a lot of the time these stories are being narrated by people who might well be insane. But this close-up narrative voice pulls you into their world and you're with them. You find that you're following that path that, and that story that they're telling, even when you know yeah. that there's something deeply wrong John, with did the you, person telling the story. John, did you? We haven't really discussed this. No, we haven't. Between us beforehand, was this collection what you thought it would be, <laughs> whatever that might have been? Um, I had only read before. Don't look now that collection so I, I knew I wasn't in for uh, some you know light light tinkling of teacups uh, but this is a totally insane collection <laughs> this is the and, recurring and, theme we're coming to I, right yeah. and, but there's a throb of pain in her stories yeah. which really interests me there's I mean I, I I sort of feel that this is not these are not stories that are written from any kind of settled authorial you know that you feel that she's she's worrying away at something really deeply troubled and troubling in her own in her own experience and psyche. Uh, they are unhinged. They are unhinged. There's there's an amazing freedom though in the way that she approaches. That you know that obviously there's something's going to happen that is going to be troubling and unpleasant. Usually in the stories, and sometimes they're more or less kind of some of them are not so unpleasant some of them are are, are awful you know the, 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 there's a, a story with the uh, the venice one in this book it's just, just everything about it it's like a sort of low rent uh, death in venice laura uh, could you tell us a bit about how this book just the background because yeah, it's book. an important it, it's an important part of her life isn't it where it happens this book it is and it's a, it's a really interesting um, collection of short stories for Du Maurier, because she does set up this, this thread, this very deliberate thread that's running all the way through them. Um, and this is why I'm particularly pleased that um, Virago republished uh, the book as the breaking point. Um, the Blue Lenses was, was one of the stories that really took off and captured people's imaginations. And when the book was republished as the Blue Lenses, it often wasn't given Du Maurier's introductory note. Um, so I'd like to read that. That yes. note. And so her her note explaining um, the, the theme, this theme of breaking point, she says, there comes a moment in the life of every individual when reality must be faced. When this happens, it is as though a link between emotion and reason is stretched to the limit of endurance and sometimes snaps. In this collection of stories, men, women, children and a nation are brought to the breaking point. Whether the link survives or snaps, the reader must judge for himself. And so, what was happening in Du Maurier's life in the late 1950s when she was writing these stories? It was a difficult um, time in her life. Um, in the great biographies of Du Maurier by Tatiana Gerone and Margaret Forster, they talk about Daphne's personal sense of, of breakdown um, and also her husband's um, breakdown during this, this time. And she's also spending a lot of time um, up in London rather than in her beloved Cornwall, her beloved Menabilly. Um, and some of the, the London stories have a real sense of 
kind of claustrophobia and feeling trapped and feeling imprisoned. In her literary life, she's also thinking about um, in the mid to late 1950s, um, she, in 1960, the year after she publishes The Breaking Point, um, she publishes The Infernal World of Branwell Bronte. Yeah. So she writes the first serious biography of the black sheep of the Bronte family, of, of Branwell, the brother who had all the talent, supposedly, um, and, and great creativity and great energy, but, but somehow never quite made it. So he came to his own breaking point and failed. And hmm. Du Maurier's biography is it's sensitive sympathetic empathetic to Branwell and one of the key themes in it comes really through these these short stories as well this idea of the relationship between reality and fantasy and what happens when fantasy takes over and that that can be a very dangerous place to be yeah, so in the preface to The Infernal World of Branwell Bronte, one of the things she's, she's fascinated by is the childhood fantasy worlds that the uh, Brontes created, the yeah, kingdoms of Gondol yeah, and Angria. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, in de Maurier's own sort of code language, to Gondol became um, a word that she used, meaning she was pretending, she was, she was fantasizing this sense of, of make-believe. But that became very dangerous to Branwell because he wasn't able to break free from this infernal world. Um, so she says that the, um, the downfall of Branwell Bronte um, was not the abortive love affair described by Mrs. Gaskell with such gusto, so the supposed affair he had with, uh, with Mrs. Robinson, but by his inability to distinguish truth from fiction, reality from fantasy, Branwell failed in life because it differed from his own infernal world. So being caught up in this infernal world is a very dangerous business. I'm very interested in death. I can't say I look forward to it. Nobody can look forward to death, but I'd love to know what is the ultimate answer. I mean, either there is something, we go on, God knows to what, or we burn out. And I don't see that it really matters, which it is. If we go on, well, then it's frightfully exciting, as exciting as going to the moon, much more exciting, I suppose. If we don't go on and we just fall asleep well that's that we don't know finish but it doesn't worry me andrew we're all going to say a little bit about one of the stories from the breaking point which story did you choose well um i chose the first story the alibi but i think maybe we should also sort of say why these stories work so well for halloween mm. um and i think it's because they all seem to be about this kind of passing over, this kind of the thin veil between worlds, that all the stories seem to be about crossing over into another realm or an, an attempt of a character to expand their vision in a way and, and, and enter into these kind of often secret other worlds or they're given glimpses of other worlds and it's a question of, of, of whether they sort of understand them. But I think it's also related to that fact that reading the biographies, this sense right from the start that Daphne du Maurier believed that she was two people in a way, you know, sort of male and female. And Absolutely. That often... She has a male alter ego, doesn't she? Oh, yes, can you when remember she's his younger, name? Eric Avon. Eric Avon. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the stories there are about, even when she's writing about the male or these male characters, there's a sense mm. that she's writing about the male aspect of her herself. And I thought the alibi was... It's the first story in the book, so I picked it up and I started reading it. Another one of the ways in which it's fascinating is it comes out of that world of the kitchen sink novel. 
It comes out of that world of John, you know, John Wayne and everything. And, and it's also very similar to um, The Horse's Mouth, yeah. you know, the, the oh, Gully Jimson. I've got the blurb on my Penguin Copy oh, Lenses, which actually gives a one-sentence on. summary of each story. Yeah. So you chose the alibi. Yeah. Here is what the alibi is about. In the alibi, a would-be murderer turned artist is hoist with his own petard. It's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the, the extract that I've chosen is the point where this would-be murderer is kind of moves away from the world of kind of secure domesticity and marriage and into this kind of flirting with possible murder, which then becomes something else entirely. The idea of escape had never come to him before. It was as though something had clicked in his brain when his wife made the remark about the Allisons. Remind me to telephone when we get home. It's their turn to come to us. The drowning man who sees the pattern of his life pass by as the sea engulfs him could at last be understood. The ring at the front door. The cheerful voices of the Allisons. The drink set out on the sideboard. The standing about for a moment and then the sitting down. These things became only pieces of the tapestry that was the whole of his life imprisonment beginning daily with the drawing back of the curtains and early morning tea, the opening of the newspaper, breakfast eaten in the small dining room with the gas fire burning blue, turned low because of waste, the journey by underground to the city, the passing hours of methodical office work, the return by underground, unfolding an evening paper in the crowd which hemmed him in, the laying down of hat and coat and umbrella, the sound of television from the drawing room, blending perhaps with the voice of his wife talking on the phone. And it was winter, or it was summer, or it was spring, or it was autumn, because with the changing seasons, the covers of the chairs and sofa in the drawing room were cleaned and replaced by others, or the trees in the square outside were in leaf or bare. It's their turn to come to us, and the Allisons, grimacing and jumping on their string, came and bowed and disappeared, and the hosts who had received them became guests in their turn, jiggling and smirking, the dancing couples set to partners in an old-time measure. Now suddenly, with the pause by Albert Bridge and Edna's remark, time had ceased, or rather, it had continued in the same way for her, for the Allisons answering the telephone, for the other partners in the dance, but for him, everything had changed. He was aware of a sense of power within. He was in control. His was the master hand that set the puppets jiggling, and Edna, poor Edna, speeding home in the taxi to a predestined role of putting out the drinks, patting cushions, shaking salted almonds from a tin. Edna had no conception of how he had stepped out of bondage into a new dimension. The apathy of Sunday lay upon the streets. Houses were closed, withdrawn. They don't know, he thought, those people inside, how one gesture of mine now, at this minute, might alter their world. A knock on the door, and someone answers. A woman yawning, an old man in carpet slippers a child sent by its parents in irritation. And according to what I will, what I decide, their whole future will be decided. Faces smashed in. Sudden murder. Theft. Fire. It was as simple as that. Laura, what is that story, The Alibi, about? I mean, I've got a theory. I want to be interested in what you think. <laughs> it's a great story, isn't it? I, I think it's about the 
danger and the doubleness and the the deception that's within all of us, um, that we could suddenly become someone else. Or in fact, we've always been that person on the inside. Um, and then that suddenly comes out. Daphne said that we are all doubles, all of mm. us. We, Everyone has their dark side and, and that dark side might slip and out. There was a specific thing, wasn't it? This just, these were written shortly after her husband, her husband's mistress had come to her and mm. said that she had been having an affair. And were, I mean, definitely hadn't been faithful either, but it really, it mm. really affected her. I mean, it really, and she worked kind of not terribly successfully to try and patch the marriage together. She was living in London in a crappy flat. Yeah, yeah so she called the rat trap. <laughs> uh, yes. And then there's the kind of her not being able to deal with the, the deception that her, her husband has practised against her. Um, and, but Andrew, what else is the, the, there's another theme in the story, isn't there? There is. One thing I do want to say, though, which I think doesn't always get said about Daphne du Maurier, is how convincing she writes as a man. You know, that, that yeah. is an eerily sort of convincing. And it's about that doubleness and it's about that kind of veil between worlds, her ability to sort of, in, in a way, move across gender. I think yeah. She's mm. incredibly talented and sort of in, in, in inhabiting the men in, in which she felt that a sort of man was sort of inhabiting awesome. her in a while. But the, the other, the thing that I think it seems to be a story about writing. Yeah. About, about the, having that yep. going off to create yes. something. Definitely. And also about... Away from the domestic But also right? about the need to, yeah, the need and to escape. And sublimating murderous rage into, into daubing paint onto a canvas. But also about the need to escape the conventional. There's a line in it where, he's, where he's, he, he's quite mad and he's talking about the paintings and he goes, they're unconventional, I know that. Not picture book stuff, but they're strong. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just, yeah. it's fantastic. And that. he's just made this up. He had to buy the paints because he kind of got tricked into having to say he was going to be a painter. Yeah. And then the fantasy of, of yeah. the, actually, he's become this extraordinary yeah. painter. Yeah. Um, I think you're but absolutely then, right. But then there's that final line at the end where you suddenly doubt it and you think, has he created this whole alibi in his head? You know, is this all... Yes, this is a painting. Yeah, you know, and I, you constantly flip flip between those worlds. Absolutely. I, I think this really is about, about writing and what Daphne is able to do yeah. as a writer. She's able to kill off characters. She's able to to, to play them like a puppet master. Um, and we had that, a, that imagery. A of, room of one's own is somewhere you go to murder people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. You, you become someone different. And when she was writing a novel, she would, and particularly the, the first-person novels, she became those characters. Um, and often when she was brewing a novel, to, to brew was one, one of the, um, again, part of this Du Maurier language, um, she'd spend whole days wandering around as these characters. So all of a sudden, you're, you're not just double, you're, you're multiple. And many of her books, I'm thinking of something like The Parasites from 1949, where there are three characters, Maria, Niall and Celia, who were all part um, of Du Maurier's personality and, and, and writing life. Um, she becomes all sorts of, of people, and that can be dangerous. Um, Laura, which story from The Breaking Point is your favourite or would you like to tell us about? My favourite is The Blue Lenses. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm saying immediately, spoilers here. So flip forward about five minutes if you don't want to hear a spoiler to do with this story. Because you can't talk about this story without giving away the... So, Laura, no. tell us what the MacGuffin of the story is. Um, so it's a story of a, of a woman um, called Marda West who um, has had an operation on her eyes. And um, having done this, this story at the Foy Festival with some friends of mine who've had eye operations, um, they found this 
utterly terrifying because she she has the bandages removed and this is going to be be the moment when um, Marder is finally able to um, the surgeon says you will see more clearly than ever before and and she really does but in a very strange disturbing and and intensely creepy way so when she wakes up when the the bandages are are removed the first nurse uh, that 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 comes into the room to talk to her nurse brand um this is this is when nurse brand enters the room smiling she saw the figure dressed in uniform come into the room bearing a tray her glass of milk upon it yet incongruous absurd the head with the uniformed cap was not a woman's head at all the thing bearing down upon her was a cow a cow on a woman's body I mean, this is one of the other incredible things about Du Maurier is her humour, and her humour mm, yeah, really yeah. should be better known. Yeah. And what's superb about this is that, you know, I can imagine if I was trying to come up with this story and I was thinking, oh, all the all the staff at the nursing home have um, animal heads. I think I'm going to start with something, something awful. It's going to be a wolf's head. But no, Du Maurier builds up mm. in stages, going from the absurd to the whimsical to the strange. So then the surgeon comes in and the surgeon has the head of a terrier, ears pricked, inquisitive searching glance. In a moment, surely he would yap and a tail wag swiftly. And and Marta, she just doesn't know what's going on. She thinks this must be some kind of conspiracy. It's some kind of trick. It's a deception. So she doesn't immediately go to, to the idea of, of horror, that, that they must be dressing up. They must be pretending and acting. And so we then uh, have other characters who appear with a weasel's head, a kitten, a proud lion. So we're still not fully in the realms of horror. A boar's head until Nurse Ansel enters the room. And Nurse Ansel, Marda has has really become very fond of of Nurse Ansel, her her calming voice uh, during the time she's been looking after her. And she thinks Nurse Ansel is going to be my saviour. Nurse Ansel would never lie. So she's waiting for her to come into the room. And this is what happens. Marda was sitting at the dressing table, putting some cream on her face, and the door must have opened without her being aware. But she heard the well-known voice, the soft, beguiling voice, and it said to her, I nearly came before. I didn't dare. You would have thought me foolish. It slid slowly into view, the long snake's head, the twisting neck, the pointed barbed tongue swiftly thrusting and swiftly withdrawn. It came into view over her shoulders through the looking glass. Absolutely superb. Her husband, it is even worse. Yeah. He kisses her. He's a vulture. Yes. And he kisses her and the detail is with her, she feels the hardness of his blood-stained beak against her cheek but the other thing that needs to be said about that is what a brilliant way to also evoke mental illness as well that sense that you you finally see these people for who they are and and they're not who you thought they were and no one else can see it. Everyone, yeah. everyone she looks at is is not. Yeah, and she's the only. It's there are yeah. no comforting humans to look. That's at. That's what's yeah. absolutely terrifying about it, and also the yeah. way in which it's against type is the caring nurse who is the snake. I think yeah. that's the, the, the man, and then the husband is the vulture. That's the master stroke. I'm I'm particularly loving the cover of your your penguins. It's sort of sixties classic penguin. 
Well, it's a, a, a dog wearing a tie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the description of the story here on this Penguin Edition uh, is as follows. The blue lenses is the terrifying post-operative nightmare of a woman who sees, in inverted commas, a new dot, dot, dot. These are quite good little yeah. pithy little yeah. things. Andrew, at the head of which animal would you hope they saw? <laughs> I'd hope they saw a dog. Would you? <laughs> but I don't any, think they any... would. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of how we want to be seen, isn't it? Yeah. I'd like, I'd well, like to be seen as a kind of lovable dog, but I don't... What about you? Come on. Me? Yeah. Whip it. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, and now. it would have been an old English sheepdog six months ago now, yeah. but now it's like a whippet, a, high, a, 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 highly, a highly strong whippet. Johnny? Uh, well, obviously, just a kind of one of those stupid looking bears with their eyes too close together. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you see the, shame, one, the, one, the one that broke in and was playing the piano? That's my spirit animal. <laughs> Laura? Probably a bird. Yeah. Also, because bird imagery is very. Popular in in Dumourier, it's one mm. of the well, well, also incredibly dangerous <laughs> birds are both a symbol of, any, of of freedom and independence. Any particular bird? Well, I'm a fan of my garden birds, so maybe a robin. Mm. Oh yes, okay. And and finally, to question to you, uh, Nikki, if I was looking at you through the blue lenses, I you'd hope I would see. It's a rather pointless animal, like a stick insect. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. The head of Nicky. a stick insect is actually a, 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 a powerful imagination. of people if you want to talk to them. <laughs> Laura, that thing you said, which I think is totally sums up De Maurier, that how she kind of equates freedom with fear. You know, the two go together. You did that kind of so, like yeah. the bird imagery is really important. There's obviously there are images of freedom and and kind of ex, you know poetry and expressiveness, but there are also images of fear. I mean, like going back to the alibi, there's there is this fear of experiment at the heart of this collection of experimental short stories. Mm. There's also a fear of experiment. It's really. Weird. And That's the thing. That's the yeah. yin and yang going. Yeah, absolutely. And all the, the time. Yeah, fear is. Yes. fear is extraordinary. The, the chamois story. Yeah, which mm. uh, is all about fear, mm. about concrete fear. Um, again, without without spoilers. But the, I, I thought the, that the ending of that story is just one of the most remarkable well, book, things I've read. One of the things I think is fascinating about Jerry, even well. when the stories don't work, and some of the stories in this don't. collection don't work. What I like about her is there's a sort of fearlessness and a kind of outs- almost like an outsider art thing going on yeah. where she will try anything and and there doesn't appear to be a voice inside going, well, don't do that, that won't work. No. She really embraces the type of story and I think that's one of the reasons why the stories don't go in di- the directions you might expect them yeah. to. We've got a clip here of the writer and actor Christopher Douglas talking about the story Don't Look Now. Now, some listeners will know, and I know Andrew will be very familiar, that Christopher Douglas writes and acts the genius writer Ed Reardon in Ed Reardon's Week. So I have included this as a treat for all fans of that programme. Every now and then on this programme we say, is this a woman's book, is this a woman's writer? Shame to admit I haven't read anything else of hers, but this collection I, I'm afraid I, I had some difficulty with. And I think the problem really was with the characterizations. I can see that in detective fiction and thrillers where the story is everything, characters sometimes have to be a bit sketchily drawn in the interests of moving the thing on. 
But I think any fictional character, like a dramatic character, has to be convincing for you to want to spend time with them. And I'm afraid these just aren't to me. In Don't Look Now, you spend about 50 pages with two people who seem utterly devoid of individuality to me. And then at the end of it all, there's a, a homicidal dwarf in a pixie mm. hood. Oh, and, you've and, given away the ending. And, well, I, I'm... I, I, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I sort of think, well, well, why have we got this homicidal dwarf? I mean, uh, you've just made that up. <laughs> yeah. where, where does he get the character of Ed Reardon from? Absolutely. I don't know. It's so brilliant. With all due disrespect to Christopher Douglas, hasn't he just articulated the thing that's so brilliant about the story? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Com- completely. It's not what you're expecting. And I think that, that for me, is what is so fascinating about writing about Du Maurier, talking about her to fans at the festival. Um, everything you think you know about Daphne Du Maurier, you don't. And she's always doing something new, something different. She does the unexpected. Yeah. Again, there's a spoiler here for the story, if you haven't read it, the story Don't Look Now. Yeah. But Laura... What is the last line of the story, Don't Look Now? What a bloody silly way to die. Now, I think Daphne du Maurier had that as the point she knew she wanted to get, get to. to yeah. And in a sense, the, the dwarf in a pixie hood, <laughs> the famous dwarf in the pixie hood, is almost a way of getting to that. The fact that that image is, as we know because of the film, incredibly <laughs> horrific and seems primal in some way, mm. is actually, I think, for Du Maurier, a way of getting to that line. That I can almost see that she has the line as the, as the genesis of the story and then reverse engineers everything to get there. But, yeah, she, of, she often does have the, the, the kind of opening and, and ending and she knows exactly how, how they are going to work. And I think one of the wonderful things about that ending is that, that John is expressing how did I get to this place? Mm, yeah. And actually many of her characters are swept up, like um, uh, the character in, in The Alibi. Yeah. How but, did he get to this place? I think the, Things have yeah. swept him along. I think the other point that needs to be said is, is, is that language is so convincing as the language of some, as, as Christopher Douglas says, some rather uninteresting middle-class Englishman. Oh, what a bloody stupid <laughs> way to die. You know, there, there yeah. is a sense in which... Again, if we're talking about twin worlds in Daphne du Maurier, that that world of kind of suburban safety and then danger, that's exactly what Don't Look Now is about, isn't it? It's about Again, it's about crossing over from that Com- world of suburban comfort into nightmare. Completely. And a, a refusal. I mean, Don't Look Now is just an, it's a fantastic title and, and, and opening for the story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, Don't Look Now. Um, but but also it's it's talking about the very fact that, that John... John can see, but he won't look. Yes, yeah. He's refusing to get in touch yeah. um, with that side of himself um, that we see kind yeah. of breaking out in these, these stories. I, I mean, I know what he's saying in that, but it's, I think it's an absolutely brilliant story. Don't look. Give me the one-liner. The pool delicately evokes the fantasy world of a young girl on the brink of puberty. Yeah. Well, that is a very good one-line description of it. And Deborah in the story is a highly articulate, very imaginative child with a brother called Roger who is, you know, not as... uh, uh, He's younger and he wants to play cricket. And she is having all kinds of extraordinary thoughts about the universe, about faith. She's just been confirmed, about religion. Um, It beautifully evokes something that I don't recall in any story, that, that thing of children staying with their grandparents. She feels sorry for the grandparents and their, their ageing and their, their routine and their mm. life and the, mm. the sound of the grandparents murmuring downstairs. And then it reminded me of uh, the wonderful Alison in the Gaal service, 
And then it also reminded me she wakes up in the, the clock strikes 11, doesn't strike 13, uh, but she goes out at night into the magic of the garden and decides she wants to sleep under the stars. I'll just read you a little bit. The stars were thicker now than they had been before. No space in the sky without a prick of light, each star a sun. Some, she thought, were newly born, white hot, others wise and colder, nearing completion. The law encompassed them, fixing the riotous path, but how they fell and tumbled depended on themselves. Such peace, such stillness, such sudden quietitude, excitement gone. The trees were no longer menacing, but guardians, and the pool was primeval water, the first, the last. Now, it's about time for it to go batshit crazy, and here we go. <laughs> then Deborah stood at the wicket gate, the boundary, and there was a woman with outstretched hand demanding tickets. Pass through, she said when Deborah reached her. We saw you coming. The wicket gate became a turnstile. Deborah pushed against it, and there was no resistance. She was through. What is it? she asked. Am I really here at last? Is this the bottom of the pool? It could be, smiled the woman. There are so many ways. You just happen to choose this one. That reminded me, funnily enough, Andrew, it's exactly what you were saying about the veil, the idea of passing from one yeah. realm to another, mm. if you can, if yes. you are able to do so. That reminds me strongly, that story of an Arthur Macken story, oh, yeah, yeah. the idea of nature being yeah. something slightly eldritch and mm. we can only half understand. And the, and the start of Rebecca, the, the nature coming back, the oh, pool yeah. and the grasping. And she's passing through the wonderful gates. thing when she's lying at the end, stared at the empty sky. She does this brilliant. She said, the heaviness of knowledge. This is after she's had her first period. The heaviness of, sorry, spoiler. The heaviness of knowledge lay upon her, a strange, deep sorrow. It won't come back, she thought. I've lost the key. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. Also, I very quickly want to say, um, before we run out of time... You've got to do your story, Andy. Well, Laura, it, you were talking about Du Maurier's humour. Oh, it's, it's... I'm just going to read the opening paragraph of this story, The glory. Menace. And then the menace was slang, wasn't it? It was a Du Maurier yeah. slang. Yeah. Sexually attractive man, wasn't it? Yeah, Isn't it was yeah? a menace. Yeah, absolutely. he's a menace. So, someone yeah. was menacing. Was waxing, <laughs> yeah. OK, so the first thing I want to say is this is... Uh, the menace doesn't even get its own description on the back cover, right? It just says, the menace and the chamois each throw a different light on aspects of modern sexuality. They'd given up by that point, hadn't they? They thought, oh, I can't do any more of these. Yeah, so did I. Firstly, because it features a character whose name is Barry Jeans. Now, even Martin Amis might think twice before, before calling a character Barry Jeans. But I'm going to read you the first paragraph, everybody, because it is really funny and great. Barry Jeans... <laughs> you can't imagine anything yeah, less menacing. I'll get, oh, no, I'm going to get it. I, mean, I had no idea that Daphne de Maurier wrote stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Barry Jeans, when his fans did not call him Barry <laughs> and wanted a bigger word for him, was known as the menace. The menace in movie language, and especially among women, means a heartthrob, a lover, someone with wide shoulders and no hips. A menace does not have long lashes or a profile. He is always ugly, generally with a crooked nose and, if possible, a scar. His voice is deep and he does not say much. When he does speak, the scriptwriters give him short, terse snaps of dialogue, phrases like, lady, take care, <laughs> or break it up, or even just maybe. <laughs> the expression on the ugly face has to be deadpan and give nothing away. 
So that sudden death or a woman's passion leaves it unmoved. Only the muscle at the side of the lean jaw tautens. And then the fans know that Barry is either going to hit someone and hit him hard or stagger in a torn shirt through a jungle carrying on his back a man who hates him (laughs) or lie in an open boat after shipwreck with the woman he loves but is far too honourable to touch. Barry Jean's The Menace must have made more money for the movie world than anyone living. He was English by birth, his father was a clergyman and vicar of Hearn Bay for many years. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I mean, if that that isn't a great setup to a story. Before we pass through the veil to the pub, here is the end of Daphne du Maurier's appearance on Desert Island Discs. When I turn on the gramophone in the evening, I would like what I do here. But seven o'clock, I have my nip of whiskey and ginger ale. And that should keep me going with the gramophone report. Right, I shall see there's a, a supply <laughs> to give you a nip an evening for a as long as you're evening. on the island. Fine. And one book, and you're not allowed the Bible or Shakespeare or big encyclopedias as obvious choices. In that case, I'd have Jane Austen, and there's an edition I have at the moment beside my bed which has three novels in it. That's fine. So if that's not cheating, the one I'd take would be Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, and um, Pride and Prejudice. And thank you, Dame Daphne du Maurier, for letting us hear your desert island disc. Well, don't forget, I'm on my way in that cockle shell, sailing. (laughs) I shan't be long. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) It's brilliant. Um, I'm afraid that all tricks and treats must come to an end at some point, and that's all we have time for. Thank you to Laura and Andrew for their uncanny insights, and to Nikki Birch for her spine-chilling audio effects, and to Unbound for letting us stay up late. Uh, you can download all 100 and blah episodes. There's over 100 now. Plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. We're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. Good evening, listeners. Uh, we'll be back again with more troubling tales this time next year. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Patlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Batlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. <laughs>